Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number four. God, we're on four already. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> My name's Dan Wood. I'm Ravi Abbott. And if you're new to the show, we're a weekly podcast from the UK covering the latest retro gaming and technology news and also a fascinating guest on the show every week as well. And this week, we've got one that I think gamers of a certain age in the UK will remember. Yeah, this is a definite retro guest. Yeah, it's at Mr Biffo. Now, if you're not familiar with him, he used to write Digitizer, the uh, daily gaming magazine on Teletext back in the day. Yeah, Teletext is an old <laughs> data service for TV. Yeah. You know, that actually used to reach 1.5 million people a week, Digitizer wow. on Teletext. I'd be happy with that many listeners, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he's coming up in around 35, 40 minutes, and obviously he's going to have some really interesting stories about the, you know, that kind of era of gaming and the reaction that the rest of the industry had to Digitizer. See, it was a bit, you know, cheeky and cutting edge back in its day, wasn't it? Yeah, it was kind of like the outcast and... Uh... Yeah, I'd just like to say as well, thanks guys for all the lovely comments that we've been getting on all the social media and everything. Yeah, it's really good, good nice. reaction to the show so far. I think we might keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, then let's get to this week's gaming stories then. Now, first of all, this one's quite interesting. Um, Europe's first hotel for retro gamers. Yeah, and it's in Amsterdam. So when we went to Amiga 30... Dan was thinking, should I take my Amiga 600 and stick it in the um, bag and then bring it to the hotel? But we don't need to now. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hotel in Amsterdam that's actually got retro consoles in every room. (laughs) Yeah, and they've got multiplayer gaming in the lobby bar as well. Yeah, there is nothing better though, is there, than like, you know, having a few drinks and uh, getting together with your mates and playing a few classic games. It is, but it depends which games, because I'm just looking at this. I can't see any Amiga content and... (laughs) There's an Xbox One. Not an Xbox One, but an yeah, Xbox One. you can't call it original, that anymore, can yeah. you? <laughs> it's, it's quite a unique spin on a, on a hotel room, though, isn't it? Having this in every room as opposed to, you know, normally you go to a hotel in a foreign country and you've got a TV in there, usually an old CRT, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> With, like, four channels and they're all in, like, you know, a different language and... That's really it, and they're locked, so you can't put anything in as well. I've always found that. I've always turned up to hotels with, like, Raspberry Pis or weird devices and then... You have to put a code in on the uh, hotel remote, <laughs> and I can't use any of these things. I did that once a couple of years ago, actually. We took um, an Xbox 360 with a Connect to nice. a hotel, <laughs> they hook it up to the TV, but yeah, it was all, all the HDMI ports were like custom ones and stuff. Yeah, so, uh, it's, a, it's a special hotel thing. So yeah, for freaks like us, who yeah. uh, bring Raspberry Pis and stuff to hotels, it saves the effort, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and uh, they said they started with a Fever, outdoor Fever contest. I don't know if that's Fever 92. Or... We'll pop a link in the show notes if you are uh, planning a trip to Amsterdam could be one worth staying in. Mm. Uh, a bit closer to home, um, a big retro gaming market in London. Yeah, so this is this is different because this is a dedicated market just for retro gaming. Now, in England, usually we have markets and there'll be one bloke on a store who will be selling old games or probably pirate games, but um, this is a full market dedicated to retro gaming, so it shows how popular it's getting again. Yeah, now they did this before Christmas by the looks of it as well, but there is another two coming up. There's one in March and uh, one in July um, this year as well. Apparently you've got to pay like a fiver to come in. But by the looks of it, it's basically, you know, an entire market dedicated to retro gaming. So like you mentioned then, you know, I've, I've been to car boot sales and that kind of thing before. And look, what would you normally find on them? Like, you know, maybe if you're lucky, a copy of FIFA on the PS2. Yeah, that, that'd <laughs> probably be like a family with a nicely kept um, Mega Drive 1 or boxed. <laughs> that every would time, be about it. Every yeah. time I've ever, I've never seen anything that old, before, you know, at car boots and that kind of thing these days it's literally all i ever see is like ps2 stuff yeah those days are gone i think i picked up a dreamcast for two pounds which was quite good but um yeah it's all cd based now i i I think i saw an old in television or something one time but it's too scared to take the plunge because it might not work (laughs) but i think because a lot of people know the value of them these days don't they so you know the more likely to stick them on ebay but looking at this at this market there's stuff like you know sega saturn games there uh dreamcast um... well it's a really good location as well it's just outside uh ucl which is uh, university college of london and Great Ormond Street Hospital. So it's bang in St Pancras, you know, a real central place. This isn't like a a suburban, edgy kind of, you know, come out of London to go there. This is bang in the centre. It's great. And there has been a few of these happening around the country. There's one in Leeds that's quite regular now as well. Because I reckon they'll have some major, like, rare imports or, you know... Yeah, we'd spend a hell of a lot of bloody money there. <laughs> but I think often at shows, though, you tend to get better prices than you would buying them online. Definitely, definitely. But then there's more stuff to eat one. <laughs> I think when you can see the stuff in front of you as well, the temptation's there, isn't it? Yeah, it's just like, no. Yeah, when, when there's, 
you know, you're online and I don't know, this is really weird. I do this all the time when I'm looking at things online. I'll see a game and I'll think, oh, that looks really good, you know, but it might be like, you know, 60 quid or something. Yeah. And I think, oh, I'll buy that. But then, like, it might be three pounds shipping. And I think, oh, I'm not paying the three pounds shipping. Oh, those bastards. <laughs> I'll wait for another one. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but uh, when it's in front of you and you can touch it, that's, yeah. I can be playing this in an hour kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of buying things online, though, as well, actually, this is quite interesting. Atari Steam is now offering 100 retro games. Tweaked by new technology. Yes, tweaked by new technology means that they've got stuff like multiplayer options in games. So maybe multiplayer centipede online or something. <laughs> <laughs> you can play Pong with your mate across the world now, yeah. yeah. So how do, are these downloadable? I assume games? so. If it's Steam, uh, I assume it's going to be, they're saying it's one single PC title that will have all the games in it. and Like a dedicated store, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think you might buy it from Steam mm-hmm. and it will be like Atari Steam and it will have all the... Games. I could be completely wrong. There could be a whole rival platform called Atari Steam that <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about. <laughs> but this is a really interesting concept, though, because um, you, you know we were talking about this on the show last week. That really, you know, the golden the golden age of multiplayer gaming was when you had your mates over to sit there and play sensible soccer or yeah. micro machines and that kind of thing. And uh, I've often thought, you know, whenever I go back home and see my brother because we used to play a lot of games together when we were kids and he always says to me oh you know bring, bring an amigo along you know we'll have, we'll have a few drinks and a few games yeah. tonight Too together control, physically yeah. together doing it and we're yeah. playing chaos engine and that kind of stuff i mean we do play online we play like psn and xbox live we regularly do that once a week but he said to me the other week it'd be awesome if we could play like you know chaos engine online wouldn't it well that's the thing like i get a lot of my mates around and we'll be playing pc gaming you know latest gta all of that stuff but we'll be sitting individually with headsets on, talking to each other, but it would be like we're in a, a LAN or we're in a cafe yeah, yeah. or something. <laughs> we're not gathered around one monitor, which is the kind of vibe that they're trying to bring back, I guess. It's obviously a different experience from sitting there with your mates on the couch, but I think often a lot of these old games haven't been updated. To... Well, I think there's new aspects. Like I never played two-player Lemmings. Mm-hmm. Like, two Amiga with... Mice. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, And I've never played... Paint as well. Have you ever played two-player paint? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just the amount of filthy stuff that can be drawn up. <laughs> you out filthy each other. It's really good. And you can erase the other person's drawings. And, you know. See, I'd like to see more pl- platforms get this kind of treatment as well so you can play those old games online again. That'd be yeah, awesome. that would be good. I, I sure there was this um, kind of way that you could play Amiga games online. In the there is, yeah. And... It's, I think you've got to do it in emulation. Is it for a proxy or... Uh... You've got, I think there is a platform you can download and they've actually kind of hacked some of these games so they'll mm-hmm. work online but you've got to run it in UAE at the moment on a PC. Yeah, it's all a bit um, built up yourself, isn't it? And DIY kind of... Yeah, it just gives you a way to play these old games again, you know, with, with maybe your friends who have drifted off around the world like, as they tend to do yeah totally and there's stuff like Syndicate you know they originally had multiplayer features in Syndicate but then they removed it for some crazy reason I'd love to see games like that coming back with uh, you know mass multiplayer games it would be great now Sega they're bringing out some classics again aren't they yeah on the on the 3DS actually which is quite good now this is going to be nine classic Sega games on one cartridge I'm looking through here um, Alter Beast oh. which is a weird game Alter Beast it's got such a bad reputation these days. I think it's because so many people played so many crappy conversions. <laughs> I'm not saying any names. Atari, Amiga. <laughs> but the Mega Drive version was really good, though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The Mega Drive was like the best. I think it was. Uh... But I, I think I blame YouTube for it. Okay. Because there's that many YouTubers who rat on that game and say it's awful. Or do, you, do you blame late? Um... Not Lazy Games Reviews, he's, he's very nice about games. Uh, what's it, Angry Video Game now? Yeah, I think it's people of that ilk, kind of, you know, they'll do videos slagging it off, and then I think a lot of people, it kind of goes into the consciousness, so... Yeah, that's interesting, because you were saying that game for... Or the flying game. Uh, where yeah, did oh, yeah, you yeah. learn C- to fly? Cybermorph on the Cybermorph, yeah, mm-hmm. it's kind of had a tainted reputation because of uh, AVGN's videos. Yeah, and I think Alter Beast has kind of got that rep now that it's considered a bad game. Whereas it, it, wasn't, it wasn't back in the day. A lot of my mates are old Mega Drive fans, so you go old to Beast and they'll be like, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, I don't think that's the general reaction now. It's all. <laughs> it's weird how that can happen, though, isn't it? Our, our reputation can change yeah. over time. Uh, there are some other good titles on here as well. The original Sonic the Hedgehog, obviously. Yeah. You've got Power that Drift as well. Galaxy Force 2, Thunderblade. Some of these are, I think, games that were probably bigger in Japan than they were here in the UK. Yeah, but it's good to have them all in one because, say, you know, you wanted just Alter Beast and you get all these extras. 
And it's twenty nine dollars is the selling it for as well. Actually, I've got the Sonic compilation on the three DS. Um, okay. I think it's a 2DS title, but you know it's got all the original Sonic games and stuff on there. And now Sega have done this for quite a while now, haven't they? Um, there's one on the GameCube they put out as well back in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, but it would be nice to see more of a, you know, cause there are some titles in here that I don't think have had a release on modern pl- platforms before. Mm. And Sega have obviously got, I mean, you know, they're not, not the company they once were, but they've got a massive heritage. Now, do you know about this? Does Nintendo own Sega now? No, but I think they do have some exclusive... Uh, license yeah because i noticed that a lot of the amiibos are like um sonic and all this kind of you know well i remember uh, you know when the olympics were on they released a uh, sonic and mario game oh a racing one wasn't it and i never thought i'd if you'd have told me 20 years ago i'd be playing a game from nintendo that had sonic and mario together you'd have been like whatever (laughs) ever ever since the early 2000s when the dreamcast was discontinued i think it was when um sonic adventure came out on the gamecube Mm. That was really the first shocker for me. Uh, but really, these days, you know, I think they do have some exclusive agreement that Sonic yeah. games will come out on, on the Wii U at the moment. And also, I would say that Sonic has been l- abused and used throughout the world a lot more than Mario, I actually think. like You can go anywhere and find some crap Sonic products, but I think Mario's been a little bit more controlled. Yeah, I think that they've kept the reputation of Mario as a de- decent franchise. Have you played the recent Sonic games on the Wii U? Uh, no, but I'm actually... Well, you need to chip my Saturn. <laughs> I've noticed that there's a really good version of Sonic for the Saturn uh, where they've re- they've gone back. Yeah, the and old they've, ones. And they've done like Sonic Two, but they've updated it and they've kept the nice Saturnness in there. So the Saturn really should have had its own proper 3D Sonic game. That was always the aim. I, I think, think that, that was the happened. failing. Yeah, mm. because they they had to release these packs and these like there was this crazy Sonic 3D world that you can run around and find all the sketches of the original concept yeah, yeah. art because you can tell they were trying to fill in that gap of no big Sonic game. Sonic is one game I don't think made the transition to 3D all that well. I mean, I did enjoy Sonic Adventure. Yeah, that Dreamcast. was good. And uh, Adventures 2. That was probably yeah. the last good Sonic game though. Actually, Generations that came out on the, uh, Ooh, that the was PS3. Lovely. Yeah, that yeah, was great. Yeah. But yeah, I, I've actually, I, I kind of went through a little stage like last year actually of just collecting every Sonic game that I saw. And there's loads of them. Even like on the Wii, you got like Sonic Colors and stuff like that, yeah. and a lot of them I'd never heard of, and I see them in like CES, Sonic like, Fishing, or there be some weird like. <laughs> but there is just so many of them, and like you know, I went through a stage of just buying them all, and then um, that my girlfriend she she knew I had a Wii U, and uh, I think it was like my birthday, so she bought me a couple of the the Wii U games, okay. and I'd heard they were shit, but I thought oh, I won't say nasty things to her, so I'll sit down and play them, you know, so yeah. offender. But God, that last game, I think it's Rise of Lyric or something it's called. I played about an hour of it and I was like, oh, I can't take any more of this. <laughs> well, I, I've been playing uh, lots of emulated stuff at the moment and there's so many of these bootleg uh, kind of Sonic clones that are so funny. Samario S- is one yeah. where it's Sonic on the Mario levels and oh, wow, vice okay. versa. And, you know. I remember it's like a horror one they did. Have you seen that one? What, where zombie Sonic? <laughs> Sonic like comes on the screen, you know the intro where he comes through the ring yeah, yeah. and he does that and then his face all turns blood red and he's like... Rah! <laughs> that sounds wicked. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it should be Sega doing that kind of thing, you know, with yeah, their old games. That's That'd be it, awesome. but they, I think they just fell too easily. Bit obviously. of innovation again, Sega, come on. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, tell us about the Retro Freak console then. This is another, yet another new console that plays retro titles. That's it, you know, these consoles, I think they're not coming out as we talk about them, but, <laughs> but there's a ton of them, so we've gotta add them in but this retro freak is it looks insane on the amount of stuff that it can actually do it's you know your famicon your snares your game gear like it's got carts for everything and uh it says it's got really good emulation as well now looking at this i mean it's not the prettiest console i've ever seen no it does look like it's printed on a 3d printer (laughs) or something it looks a bit like a toaster (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's got, um, yeah, you basically got three cartridge slots on the top. Uh, look, and is, is there a Mega Drive one there in the back? Uh, yeah, Famicom, Super Famicom, SNES, Mega Drive, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, PC Engine. Yeah, well, there's... Yeah, Master there's System and NES. Slot, slots on the front here as well. TurboGrafx-16 as well. Game Boy. Yeah. Three USB ports. So basically, this is a box with just holes you can shove cartridges into all <laughs> over it. Yeah, interesting. They're, they're saying it's really good uh, because you know the emulation on it is rock solid, mm-hmm. which is a thing. Everything else is pretty useless, like the screen filters and stuff. Essentially, it's an emulator with a, a kind of HDMI out. If you're willing to pay a hundred and 
£10 for that, then I don't know. We've talked about emulation before, and I, I'm not a big fan of emulation. I use it when, when it's necessary or when it's convenient. Mm. Um, but I, I've got an Ouya. Ouya, yeah. I Console. remember your old review of the Ouya. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I kind of, uh, I got on the side with the Ouya. Obviously, in hindsight, it wasn't the most successful console ever. But I think a lot of people bought Ouyas to mod them. Well, you didn't have to mod them, actually. You just download... Um, there's a load of emulators that are available in the Ouya store. And you've got a great little portable platform that you can take around to your mate's house or whatever. Uh, but again, I mean, same with this um, Retro Freak console. It gives you stuff like um, save games. Save games, yeah, patches. But also, it's saying here, like, look at the console... Um little handheld controllers. They look a bit flimsy and shite. But, <laughs> the ones um, that come with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they're saying, you know, you need the original ones as well. So I don't know how this would work if you plug in a Game Gear game and then try and run it on a SNES controller. <laughs> with a lot of a lot of these modern consoles, I mean, like, the, for example, you can, uh, you can sync like a PS4, a PS3 Bluetooth okay. controller to it. Um, but also, I mean, you can get stuff like USB adapters for... Super yeah. Nintendo controllers and that kind of thing. So I'll tell you, the Ouya had a really nice controller. The one that came it, with it? Yeah, I thought it looked... Well, it looked nice. I don't know how it felt. It, but... it got a very bad re- um, reputation online, actually. Oh. But I think there was a problem with the early systems that they had some lag. Ah, so uh, between the controller and the... Uh, yeah, the... it was just half a second. Uh-huh. You'd do something and it wouldn't respond instantly. I mean, the, the machine I got... I've never experienced that. I've always been all right with mine, whether it's something they fixed, you know... In yeah, the... later rev or something. Yeah, it might have been the early Kickstarter ones, but... Um, these systems are interesting, though, the fact that if you don't want to go to the hassle of setting up your own emulation system and all that, you can buy this, and it's plug-and-play pretty much, isn't it? So. Yeah, well, we're going on to another system as well that we've got here, one that I just found at Argos, because <laughs> no one seems to be talking about these Argos ones, and this is a Sega portable console with 30 games. Now, this is kind of crazy. It says here, LCD player plays 30 of Sega's 8-bit favourites, including all the Sonic games. Now, do you think this is some like kind of marketing guy at Argos has wrote that? Because when I think of Sega, I don't really think of 8-bit games, especially no, not Sonic. Yeah, I know yeah. It was out on the Master no, System. No, but, but, but maybe they mean 8-bit as in all Sonic games for the Master System, <laughs> which would be like, you know... Yeah, but the reviews that I've seen of it, it looks really good, and it's only £30, so... That's quite good if you want something to keep your kids entertained. Yeah, looking at this, it does play Master System and Game Gear games. So uh, what originals? Um, no, I think that it's ones that are built in. Okay. So, but it's, yeah, it's got thirty of them built in. It doesn't look all that much like a Game Gear, to be fair. But it's uh, yeah, it looks like an Engage. <laughs> <laughs> but there are so many of these coming out, and it's obviously a cash in, isn't it? The good little stocking fillers at Christmas and that kind of thing, aren't they? Yeah, that's but... it. And I think we're going to keep discussing these because no one else is, and we're going to have tons of these coming <laughs> out. I think it's just going to keep happening. I've only got one of them though. I've got the uh, Atari Flashback. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my missus got me that a couple of years ago. It was actually really awkward, though, uh, because I, I was never a big Atari gamer. It was kind of a bit before my time, you yeah. know, when the, the 2600 was out. And uh, my girlfriend's dad has got a 2600, and he's really into it. And then um, <laughs> it was actually on Christmas Day, not last year, a year before. Uh, we're going to Samantha, my missus' parents, for Christmas dinner. Yeah. And she's saying, we, we started talking about... Um, you might buy a dad like a, a new Atari or something, or you might get it out of the loft. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not a big fan of Atari games. I find them a bit boring. Now, obviously, there are some good titles on the 2600. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I, I'd said that to her, just kind of, you know, just kind of came out. Oh, Atari's a bit shit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, I, I kind of meant I haven't got that many fond memories of it. Yeah. So then we get there, and I've got a bag of presents waiting there. First thing she bought me, the Atari flashback console. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit so, like, oh yeah, what's so you're backtracking. Yeah, you're oh, just no, like, oh I felt my awful. god. And then uh, yeah, for, I said, oh, let's set it up. It's fun, isn't it? Actually, we did have a good laugh playing it and stuff in the end. But it's uh, yeah, I guess there's titles that ported as well that you would have recognised us. So, yeah, put even Pong you know, in it's that kind of arcade thing. classics, isn't it, Atari? That's it is, the yeah. kind of, uh, they invented it all, really. <laughs> but for the average guy in the street who's got, you know, oh yeah, I used to have one of them back then, and this is a much more convenient way. And they're cheap as well. Yeah, I mean, this so is 30 quid. Yeah, it's not bad. Now, talking about arcade machines... You guys may have remembered when Dragon's Lair came in. Was that the first Laserdisc game? It was the first Laserdisc, and if you don't know about Laserdisc, it's, a, it's the size of a vinyl <laughs> uh, kind of CD. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it's literally the size of a 12-inch record, but the, the shiny like a CD. Yeah, so they used to have these for these, like, Dragon's Lair is like an interactive movie, and they used to have these giant Laserdiscs, and uh, they said that the machines were really unreliable, mm-hmm. they'd always skip, They'd, they'd often have two because one would be broken down. Um, 
Yeah, it was awfully unreliable. So now what they've released is they've actually released an SD card replacement, but for the old arcade machines. So <laughs> if you've got one lying around, yeah, yeah, you can use the jammer boards on this, I think, and uh, that's the kind of arcade standard mm-hmm. that was out. And they're saying, you know, the laser disc formats um, already suffering laser rot. Well, you do find that though with. Um very old optical discs. No, oh, don't tell me my CD32 <laughs> collection's all going to rot. <laughs> well, I think it's more the, the laser intensity kind of, over time, it gets weaker okay. and weaker. Okay. So they're, they're often, you know, when you open an old console, a lot of them have tuning pots. Yeah. So you can actually turn up the intensity of the lasers and stuff. I must admit, I've never had much success doing that. Usually it makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> I try I d- doing that. And I guess these are kind of, you know, 1983, I think this came out. Yeah, you know, very, very old technology. So this means you can just stick your SD card in, no skipping, mm-hmm. all your kind of games. So it's a, it's a cool little device. Dragons, I remember the first time I saw Dragons Lair, it was, it was probably in the mid-90s, actually. Um, there was an arcade at the seaside I used to go to, and that, they hadn't had any new games in for like 10 years. Yeah. So it was all like, you know, early 80s stuff, but they did have a Dragon's Lair laser disc machine there. And ah. I remember it was very awkward timing on Dragon's Lair. you kind of walk over a bridge. <laughs> yeah, you had to know it. Yeah, but you did have to know exactly when to press the buttons and that. It was a very, very frustrating game, but yeah. it was a proper cartoon. And oh, yeah, yeah. I remember the Amiga version. Amiga handled it quite well because mm. they could redraw the animations as anims, not FMV video sequences. But Pretty crap game, though. Yeah, 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 <laughs> pretty crap. Really, I could never get past, like, a bridge to get in the yeah, castle the beginning, at the yeah, beginning. Yeah. yeah, I could never <laughs> even get past that, so... And because it was a laser disc game in the arcade, I remember this one I was in, they charged about 50p a go for it as well, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, it must have been a more expensive price than that one. <laughs> and this device is called Dexter, which is a nice name. Well, laser discs are interesting as well. I mean, I've never... I'm not a massive movie buff, mm. um, but I do remember being a kid and there was, there was a, a video game shop I'd go into called Chips, it was called. Ah. And they had um, one room was like games, and then you go through this little like you know door in the back, and they'd have like a movie memorabilia store. Yeah, yeah. And there was a load of laser discs in there as well. So me and my mate would always go through. It was probably about maybe ninety two, ninety three, and we go on a Saturday afternoon. We'd always go and have a look, you know, with our five pound pocket money. Yeah. And we'd go through them and be like, my mates always, like, oh yeah, yeah I'm going to get a laser disc player and all that, you know. <laughs> so we never did because it cost a fortune back then. But... They were so expensive. I remember I went into I think it was Sherwood Audio Shop in. Uh, Nottingham Mm -hmm. and this was about 91 and they had this giant machine it's like it looks like a washing machine the top of it's been sliced off or something and it was like that big (laughs) vibrated your room when it came and there was just a salesman putting these giant discs in and I remember seeing the video footage and thinking oh my god the clarity on that it's amazing (laughs) and like now I see it and it looks awful (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's just how cool they looked yeah yeah they looked really cool and you know CD they they were actually were they out before CDs? It must, they must have been have a been, similar yeah. kind of era, yeah, early eighties. But they, it's, it must have been before CDs because they kind of had the vinyl, you know, and then they made the CDs, which was just a smaller mm-hmm. laser disc, I guess. But it's I, I remember that I remember reading that you could only play like you know you'd, you'd have to turn the disc over like yeah yeah four they, times they, in your movie. <laughs> they had some two sided ones or you had a double disc set yeah they were two sided <laughs> yeah every half an hour you're getting up to turn the disc over yeah. so I think there was a couple of different standards of laser discs so later on they had like interactive menus and mm-hmm. you know behind the scenes and stuff like that but at the first it was just like we could hardly fit anything on it <laughs> and, you know and probably the really posh guys had like you know a laser display that could automatically like turn them around or something yeah it had but... quite a long life as well I think recently, in recent years, it's actually got a bit more of a cult following again. Yeah, I know. It's a lot of people making YouTube videos, my Laserdisc collection. Yeah. And I just like to watch it because they, they do look like beautiful pieces. They're not like scrappy VHSs. Yeah. You know, they're really well presented. Sometimes you get pictures on the disc as well. Yeah, the artwork was very yeah. nice. And because it was so big as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like a big piece. Now, the PlayStation has got a new device that lets you uh, replace your CDs, as we've been talking about there. If uh, you know you haven't got... Maybe you haven't got a hacked PlayStation 1, you'd like to play some of these old titles? Yeah, so back in the days, we used to have a, a thing for the PlayStation 1, which was uh, the pen trick, uh, swap trick, which uh, <laughs> was kind of every British school kid would do this and they'd just stick a biro pen into the uh, push-down button and then with a sequence of moving the discs, you could play a backup. Mm-hmm. But I 
reckon that probably wrecks your laser. <laughs> well, you have to do it fast as well. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah, yank it out. And uh, this is an actual way that you can load SD cards yet again through the PSIO interface on the back. And looking at it here, it's got quite a nice menu as well. So you download the images off the internet, plug it in the back of your machine, and then you can have all your games loaded onto an SD card. It means you can do both as well. So there was one for the Dreamcast where you had to totally cut off the lines for the CD drive. Mm -hmm. But this one you can actually choose CD-ROM or ISO. You haven't got a mod your system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it doesn't cripple it at all. See, I've got a PS1 and uh, I've been looking around for mod chips for it recently because I thought there are some games I'd like to play that are a bit hard to find these days, but this sounds like a much better solution. Yeah, it's, it's good. It says uh, it's got the ability to save games progress as well mm-hmm. and uh, you can play music through it, you know, <laughs> other than MP3 because it can't handle MP3. <laughs> so, yeah, it looks really good and I think there's built-in cheat system and stuff. It's beta testing right now, but I, I imagine they're going to be releasing it and taking pre-orders for that very soon. Also, I mean, there is another one um, that we've just been reading about here, uh, the Phoebe, um, which is for the Sega Saturn. That's a CD drive replacement for that. Ah, that's good. That's really good, actually, because uh, I've just got a Saturn. You have, actually. <laughs> yeah. you, you bought a Saturn in um, the winter revival yeah, for, show we from, went to. Uh, Retro Lords, I think it was, retrolords.com. You only got one game with it, though, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Raymond. Raymond. Rayman, yeah, yeah, the yeah. original, but there's so many I want to play on that. So I modded my Saturn last year, and I'm going to, I'm going to mod yours as well. The Saturn's a great platform. Uh, you know, it's very underrated, I think, but yeah. the games are quite hard to track down these days, so having a device like this... Well, the, the good thing about it is I got the uh, RGB SCART, mm-hmm. so I can plug it straight into one of my old monitors, and then you've got, like, you know beautiful colours and beautiful images. So Yeah, I, yeah. I've got one as well. And I, I hook it up to my old uh, Philips CRT screen. Nice. Yeah, and the games are gorgeous on that. I was playing, what was I playing the day? Hexen. Hexen. Yeah, the, the old um, first-person shooter. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. actually the Saturn's a weird period because it's like Dreamcast, all 3D. Mm-hmm. Saturn, 2D, really high-end 2D, some 3D early stuff. I think they had Tomb Raider and stuff like that. The Saturn itself, though, yeah, like you said, it was that awkward period. It was designed as a 2D system originally. And then all of a sudden, like the guys at Sega were like, oh shit, 3D's actually going to be quite big. Actually, the guys at Sega turned around and said, when RPG games and the 2D were the highest selling thing on the Saturn and what mm-hmm. everyone was expecting, Sega's future is not RPG games yeah. and role-playing games and we won't <laughs> be doing them. And it's like shooting yourself in the foot completely. But I remember, you know, the Saturn actually was already out in Japan Around the time the 32X came out here? That was a problem. I think mm. Sega Japan didn't tell them. Sega US about <laughs> side and they both developed new models and then went, what the hell's this? Well, I, no, I actually heard it was uh, basically Sega of America said, yeah. oh, you know, the Mega Drive's too popular here. We're not ready to replace it yet. So they okay. didn't want to bring out the Saturn yet. Whereas in but gamers, they were reading the magazines and reading yeah. about the Saturn. Who the hell was going to buy a 32X when you knew its shelf life was limited? And then developers come and they go, what, are we going to wait for the Saturn to sell more or the yeah, 32X? Yeah. And it just... Awful time. But the Saturn's a good console, though. I've actually got the um, the 3D controller for it. Okay. Which I gives you uh, an analogue. It's a bit like a Dreamcast controller, really. Nice. I think the Dreamcast controller was based on the Saturn 3D controller. Yeah. So you've got like, an analogue stick on there as well. And it's got a really nice D-pad, but for games like Hexen and Tomb Raider and that, it's, yeah. it's a lot better than playing it with the... The standard controller. That's it. And uh, we've also got some other news, which is a, a Japanese publisher has found Noz. Now, if you know... Noz. Noz, yeah. <laughs> new old stock. Yeah, new old stock. So this is basically stuff that's, like, shoved in a factory and then no one knows about it for, like, <laughs> years until someone goes, oh, what's this? Oh, I'll put it on eBay. So, <laughs> so these are a bunch of old um, Super Nintendo games. Factory sealed. Factory sealed, Yes. Well, it says, it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the fact that they do find all this old stuff, it makes you wonder what's lying in factories all around the world, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, do you know, here they're saying one of the games that they've got, new old stock, Natsumi, was $1,691 the last time it sold on eBay. So these semis are rare games. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a Pocky and Rocky. What's <laughs> the game? <laughs> Pocky and Rocky. I can't, yeah. can't say I've ever played and that there's one. Harvest Moon as well for the um, N64, and I know that was a particularly uh, popular and expensive game, I think. 
but sealed, you know. I wonder if they're going to be selling them for uh, £1,600 <laughs> or when yeah, they'll stick yeah. them on at 99p stuff. Well, yeah, we'll see what they get. <laughs> That's crazy, though. <laughs> I remember there was a guy selling um, a bunch of new old stock Amiga CD32s last year on eBay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was weird because there was a whole factory. What happened was the Amiga, they sent it out to get from Malaysia to be processed. Uh, where they were being built, the consoles, they sent them to America, mm-hmm. and then they couldn't sell them in America because of uh, there was a different copyright issue. Yeah, that's what killed yeah. the CD32, really, So wasn't they it? shoved the load in Canada and tried to kind of get it to come down dodgily, but then there was crates of it left in Malaysia, and this one actually got found by a factory... I think it was part of the Malaysian government that yeah. actually owned it because with the liquidation... They, they seized took, it, didn't they? They yeah. seized the property, yeah. But then that's just been lying there in a box in the corner for like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Crazy, it's it's, it's, it's a, the same with uh, Amiga 1200s. Mm-hmm. Um, Petro Chichenko from uh, Amiga Technologies sent a load to India years ago and then the bloke <laughs> rang him up like, oh, I've still got your CD for <laughs> your 1200s and he's like, what the hell? He's been selling them all on... Uh, on his Facebook page I noticed last year didn't yeah, they yeah yeah he just posts pictures of him with crates of them yeah. <laughs> good little retirement plan that yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> That's it and our final story this week then it's about the Amiga yes this is the Amiga games list now I did not know there was such a thing that existed but apparently it's been around a while <laughs> yeah so the Amiga games they've released thousands upon thousands of thousands I dare anyone to try and collect it and this guy started a list in 1991 and there's 11,000 games on this. 11,865 Eight. Amiga yeah. games. That's, that's a lot, isn't it? That is a, an insane amount. Like, yeah. And uh, he's kind of updating this list, and we'll put a link to it in the description because it's, it's really amazing reading because, you know, 11,000 games all through letters. You can see all the different versions of them, all the kind of fake clones because everything's... <laughs> uh, like worded similar, you know, and uh, and if you've got that smug mate who's like, yeah, yeah, I've got every Amiga game, then you're like, actually, you probably haven't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless you've got a giant warehouse. Yeah, or three. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, all the links will be in the show notes as we do every week. Thank you so much for listening, guys. You can, of course, download the podcast every Friday from the website, theretrohour.com, iTunes, and on YouTube now as well. Yes, YouTube, and we've been getting some good comments on that, so uh, subscribe. Yeah, keep your feedback coming in, guys. Always nice to hear from you and any topics you think we should be covering, anything like that. It makes it all worth doing, you know. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be back next week, and now, for those UK gamers who remember uh, Teletext, I was a religious reader of Digitizer back in the day, so it's amazing talking to this guy, Mr. Biffo, who was the man behind Digitizer coming up for the next half an hour on the Retro Hour. And we'll catch you next week. See you next week. Paul Rose, a.k.a. Mr Biffo. We'll start at the beginning. How did you land the job at Teletext originally? It was a case of not what you know, but who you know, really. But I used to do Teletext graphics for Labbrook Racing, the, the bookmakers. Oracle was closing down, Teletext had taken the license from them, and it just happened to be that someone I'd worked with at Labbrooks uh, lived in a flat with someone um, that worked at Teletext and heard that they needed a a guy to do their graphics. So it was that, really. I went in there and I did some uh, drawings for them that day, and they offered me the job there and then. So how did Digitizer start then? Well, it was by accident uh, that, that I got involved with it. The... The teenagers section, uh, which Teletext had already been planning to do prior to, to my involvement, um, was going to have a, a games page, which was just literally going to be a couple of pages in amongst, you know, kind of teenage agony aunt type columns. And I happened to say to the editor, um, you know, you need to expand this into a, a full-blown section. You know, it was around the time of, sort of Sonic 2 coming out. Games were clearly getting bigger than ever and I, I said there's enough there's enough material there potentially and enough news and whatnot to to fill out a section and he he basically said right fine you can write it then with the guy that was already writing the the games page for the teenage section which was called generator mm. um and and that was that really i'd never i'd never written anything in my life prior to that <laughs> and somehow it ended up kind of becoming 75% of my job and the other 25% I carried on doing the graphics for a long time 
Um, and uh, that was that, really. You had to learn journalism on the go then? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd already, always, as a kid, I'd, I'd enjoyed English and writing story stories and things at school and... Um, but you know, in terms of actually being a journalist, I, I never thought that was something that was going to happen. Um, but fortunately, Tim Moore, who I co-wrote Digi with in the early days, he was a proper journalist and it had, you know, kind of the best part of ten years' experience under his belt. So I kind of learned by copying him. Um, and I think the two things that came together it was his style of writing and my kind of slightly weird sense of humour, um, which gave Digi its its flavor well that's the one thing everyone remembers digi for i mean even all the characters you had as well like uh, i remember the man with the long chin oh yes and, yeah, um, <laughs> the fat sow as well the furious pig uh, yeah well she was uh she was just an attempt to, i mean a lot of the time with her um we weren't particularly angry about the things that she used to rant about but every time we put up a rant by fat sow uh, you know our post bag would go through the roof because <laughs> people would kind of write in to complain about what she had to say so it was a way of generating post it was really unique, though, at the time. And where did the idea for characters and that kind of, you know, the humour of that, where did that come from? It was it was a mixture of the fact that I could do graphics, so that felt like kind of a natural extension of my job. And then on top of that, Tim and I, we were just trying to make each other laugh. So I'd come up with a stupid character and write <laughs> some some text to go with it, and, and Tim would... Yeah, you know, refine the text, and and that's what it became. Really, it was it was purely Tim and I entertaining ourselves and uh, trying to one up each other in terms of you know who could make the other one laugh the most. Were you getting a lot of feedback at the time? Because I guess you being a free a free magazine on the television compared to one in the shops, you were probably massively popular. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, fairly early on, um, it became apparent that there were you know a lot of people reading. I mean, we used to get you know this is back in the day before email so literally every day you'd going to get close to 100 letters at mm-hmm. points you know kind of proper physical physical mail that people are taking the time to write um and you know the early post bag was mostly filled by amiga owners who were complaining about the fact that we'd said we weren't covering the amiga because it was a, a dying <laughs> never tell an amiga owner that his platform's dying <laughs> yeah, yeah well we were proved right in the end weren't we so. <laughs> yeah but they'll still defend it to this day it's hilarious oh i'm sure yeah. <laughs> were you much of a gamer yourself then uh yeah i mean i you know i'd always 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 played games but i think at the time that i started to write um digi kind of by accident that it i wasn't the kind of heavy gamer that i had been you know kind of in, in previous years I'd, I'd, I'd gone off it a bit you know I, I was a dad by that point and you know i had a young daughter and i think yeah my priorities changed i still had you know a snares and i had a mega drive but i didn't play them as religiously as i had done when i was a, a teenager but um, but that changed pretty sharpish. I mean, Tim, for a start, wasn't uh, a gamer really at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to, you know, pick up the slack in terms of the sort of gaming knowledge. Um, you know, and I, I think I still read all the games magazines at the time, kind of Mean Machines and CMVG and, and the like. So I kind of knew what was going on. But, you know, games, games were expensive and I wasn't rich by any means <laughs> at that point. So I could only play the occasional, occasional one that I could afford. And then you got free games, I imagine, when Digitizer came out. Yeah, it's awesome. It was <laughs> literally, it was, it was, yeah, the early on, it was, you know, we, we struggled to get um, contacts with the PR people. I think they just didn't take us seriously because we were on Teletext and Teletext was kind of, you know, the, the you know, scrag end of, of the media in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of made a deal with a, a, an importer um, who had a, a shop down in Park, Park Royal in London. And, we used to just go there and come out with a huge box full of kind of import games and game gears and things. And it was, I remember the first time we did it and we, we kind of tried to be all cool when we were in there and, and we just came out and looked at each other and just like jaws dropped. It was like, <laughs> can, you, can you believe that just happened? <laughs> like Christmas day for a gamer, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was surreal. Um, it really was. Now digitizer it started, was it 1993 you began? Yeah, yeah, 1st of January. Yeah, well, it was like, so obviously, that period of gaming, those early years, you started in 93, that was, um, you know, Amiga, Mega Drive, Super Nintendo. And then, you know, by the time it finished, it was like the PS2 and Xbox were out. You charted, like, a massive, if not the biggest change in gaming over that decade, didn't you? You must have seen it all. Yeah, well, it, it was notable that the first 
um, gaming event that we went to was the launch of Sonic 2. And that, that was, in many respects, the sort of first time any any of the big games companies had kind of done, a, I think, a launch on that scale. You know, they, they hired out Hamleys for the night and, you know, all the celebs were there. Wright said Fred, Chuck, Tucker Jenkins, <laughs> all the big names. Um but uh, and that was that was just before we launched, but we we got to go to it somehow. And yeah, I think that was the starting point of games kind of becoming mainstream, really, rather than a, a slightly sort of geeky underground hobby for for boys. It, it became something from the point of Sonic Two onwards, where which everyone did. And so it was, you know, probably the the most exciting time imaginable. And then obviously the 3D era came out with the PlayStation and the Saturn and everything. Did you notice that was a big change? Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember going to the launch of, um, God, what was it called? Seventh Guest or Eleventh Hour? One of those mm-hmm. early CD-ROM games. Uh, and at the launch, they talked about the Nintendo PlayStation, which was going to be the uh, CD-ROM drive that the that Sony were making for the snares and how it was going to be on there and how it was this game was going to change everything, uh, which obviously the game itself didn't, but it certainly sort of held in the CD-ROM era and the games becoming 3D in a, in a slightly... They've just found the prototype of that, haven't they? And, uh, yeah, yeah, it weird. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, I, I still remember seeing the, the PlayStation, the first time I ever saw the PlayStation at a trade event and it was in a glass case, you know, kind of when you when you see uh, movies where they, you know, are doing a heist and they kind of go in, there's a diamond. <laughs> on, on, <laughs> just one spotlight you know highlighting it but yeah it was uh you know but it was it's weird to kind of remember back to yeah there was a time when the playstation was going to be a nintendo branded machine you must have seen some systems though particularly around that time i mean it seemed like there was a new console out every week at one point in the mid 90s were there any systems you saw that you just knew were going to fail oh god yeah i mean you know jaguar 3do you know cdi all of those cd tv instantly just in it was always the ones you know, in, in every case, it it was just bad hardware design. Uh, CD thirty two, the you know the Commodore um, console. That I mean, it, you picked it up and it felt so hollow. The thing <laughs> practically rattled. Um, yeah, that lid was awful on it as well. It was really yeah, fluffy. <laughs> yeah, that awful kind of bone shaped controller that just fell back to front. It, it it was. I think you know you can tell a lot about a piece of hardware by by how solid it feels, and you know it was awful that thing. So I mean, all those ones that came out over that time that flopped. I think you know you could sort of say it's a chicken and egg thing. I mean, Digi was quite influential back in its day, but all of them we kind of called out as flops um, pretty much from day one. <laughs> so I don't know if we contributed to it happening at all, but. Um, were you actually but, yeah. at the UK launch of the Jag, were you? Uh, yeah, well, I say that. Um, I do remember the, the relaunch of the Jag where they, um, they, they hired out Madam, not Madam Two Swords, it was uh, the London Planetarium and did a big uh, presentation where they were going to showcase all these new games that were going to turn the Jaguar around and you know, people would stop laughing at it. And they, they showed these games off in the Planetarium and literally the audience burst into laughter, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, kind of, half these games they appear on screen and people it was i mean i felt really bad for atari it was it was Rule humiliating the for jaguar me. stuff looking angrily yeah. at the audience oh, oh, God, yeah. yeah no they absolutely were i mean remember their pr guy after his face i mean he was red in the face and just scowling um he wasn't a man to hide his emotions now digitizer whenever i used to read it i mean i, I was an amiga user you know in the in the early to mid 90s oh, and... you were one of them were you <laughs> <laughs> well i do remember there was even petitions like on amiga disc mags and um you know the early days of the internet saying you were disrespectful to amiga fans and stuff did you did you intentionally try and piss off fanboys yeah yeah i make no bones about it, <laughs> it was, um I, I, it's it's weird because it's sort of slightly um suicidal to do that when you're you know trying to build an audience really <laughs> but i think the the section of the audience that we didn't piss off uh really liked the fact that we were pissed in the rest of them off so it, it kind of built a degree of loyalty <laughs> among those people who we hadn't driven away but we were lucky as well it's not like today with websites where there's a thousand different websites all competing for one another you know in terms of uh you know the media at the time it was the magazines and then us so you know there was no real alternative to to, to digi, digi in terms of um you know, Teletext Daily Games Mags. So, yeah, you know, we we could afford to do that. I don't think, you know, Kotaku and Games Radar and the like could really 
get away with it now. <laughs> I always think as well that even though you know it pissed you off, you'd go on the next day just to see what you'd say next as well. So it didn't stop you reading it. <laughs> you just yeah, got more yeah. angry. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, obviously, you know, Digitizer was a daily magazine. Did it take a lot of time then? Was there a lot of work went into that? Um, not really. <laughs> That's really bad. But, uh, you know, every page was 60 words or something like that. And then, you know, we'd have one to four, sometimes a few more um, frames per per page. Or So, you know, you're kind of talking 240 words, I don't know, a couple of thousand words we had to write every day. And it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. I mean, at, towards the end when I was writing it on my own, um, and I went freelance. I wasn't working at Teletext headquarters. I was working from home. <laughs> it was. Uh, uh, I, I hesitate to say money for old rope because I did enjoy doing it. And I think you know, Digi was good uh, in its own way. But um, yeah, it, it you know, it was a it was a job that I was able to do alongside doing the graphics for Teletext as well. What was the um, other gaming press's reaction to Digi, or how did they treat you guys? Well, it was weird because Future. Um, you know, who God, what do they publish all sort of Amiga Power, Amiga and Format, yeah. Edge, and the like? They loved us, uh, and then EMAP, who published CMVG and Meme Machines, absolutely hated us. Uh, and I, I never quite worked out why. But the second that they started kind of printing things about um, us, which were not terribly favourable, of course, we could retaliate, and we could <laughs> retaliate daily. We said they could only retaliate once a month. <laughs> Uh, they came to regret it. Yeah, you've got 31 jabs in in the time they've got one in. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> now, at the time, I mean, you were reaching um, 1.5 million people a week, I've read, at your peak. That um, was at the peak, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't stay that high. It went down to about half a million, um, and then we went down. Even <laughs> 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 um, but, yeah, you know, we, we certainly, it, it was crazy. Did you know how popular it was then when you were working on it? No, not really. We were sort of doing it in a bubble. It wasn't like now, um, you know, you kind of get uh, with a website, you kind of can see your hits in real time and, you know, see what the, the stats are. You get comments in real time. Back then, I think the, uh, gosh, I think it was probably once a fortnight or something like that that we got the, the, the viewing statistics through. And although we got a kind of a lot of physical post. Uh, a mail come through i don't know it was yeah it wasn't that kind of sort of direct feedback that that you get now with the internet so there wasn't the sense of you know one and a half million people out there reading us you know there weren't message boards that people were discussing us on it was just you know it was it, as far as we knew it was the same kind of i don't know dozen people writing to us every day you know the the, the hardcore we didn't realize it sort of went beyond that and until until it ended really which is is sad in a way but at the same time maybe if i knew how popular it was at the time that i was writing it it might have i don't know messed with my head a bit now your style and humor was obviously pretty edgy as we've covered i mean tell the rest of teletext was obviously a little bit quite pedestrian and straight laced in many ways did it ever get you in trouble? Uh, yes, repeatedly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If there was anyone that hated us more than Amiga owners and EMAP, it was it was our bosses. They pretty much from month one uh, seemed to want to get rid of Digitizer and take it off the air. But unfortunately, we were popular, so we had that as a kind of armour. Um, you know, and I remember fairly early on the feature editor describing us as the the guys that had saved teletext because i think um teletext as a whole had quite a um, a tricky um bumpy ride in the first six months to a year um digi was about the only thing that was considered a success but i mean that soon changed because they started to see us as troublemakers and probably the one that uh, angered me <laughs> the most was um we had a staff training day was, you know one of these things that you do once in a while which is sort of team building and the, the morning it was uh various lessons on how to be a good journalist and in the afternoon we had to kind of do stupid team building exercises but um one of the exercises in the morning it was uh, the question was posed what would you do um with regard to your section if uh the royal family were killed in an avalanche while skiing and <laughs> The first guy to answer said is, um, well, the first thing I'll do is, um, yeah, go straight to Digitizer and just check they haven't put any sick jokes on there. No and, way. you know, that sounds like he was saying it as a joke, 
but he wasn't. And then everyone else said, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely the first thing. <laughs> so, as a journalist, <laughs> not change your kind of mastheads to you know, put up a kind of you know, obituary or, yeah, it was literally, yeah, check, check digitise it. And I, I, it was at that point that I kind of thought, wow, I, you know, they think we're so much worse than we actually are. Um, yeah, but it, it angered me that I was sat in the room and they were talking about me like that. Everyone's nodding their heads like, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, they were, they were taking notes. That People were writing that down. Um, so I don't know if that entered into any kind of official paperwork at Teletext. <laughs> in the event of the, the royal family dying on Avalanche, this is what you must do. Step one, check digitizer. Now, there's you and Tim working on it daily. How many other people worked on it as well, or was it just mainly you guys? It was mainly us two, and then... Um, uh, a mate of mine called Adam Keeble came along, uh, I don't know, in the first sort of three, four months. And he he wrote um, some reviews. I mean, he had an Amiga, so we were able to kind of finally appease the Amiga owners because we managed to get someone who had an Amiga who could review Amiga games. Um, so he did some of those. And then um, he kind of inputted the letters and I think the, the cheats pages and the charts, so all the kind of sort of dog's body kind of work that Tim and I didn't want to do but I mean Adam went on to become a proper member of the Teletech staff and worked on the sports pages and and he got replaced by a guy called Sean and then he got placed by a guy um, another friend of mine called Gavin Lambert um, doing the same sort of thing and you had Stuart Campbell working with you for a while is that right uh, he, well, yeah, I mean, he didn't work directly with us. He, uh, We became friends with Violet Berlin. He used to present the TV show Bad Influence, mm-hmm. um, and she uh, wrote a column for us, and then that went down well. So we uh, suggested to the bosses that we kind of have other columnists, and Stuart Campbell was suggested to us by Violet. So he, he didn't work in-house, but um, would send you know his column in. Once, once a month. So, uh, yeah, and then Tony Mott, who was the editor of Edge, uh, wrote a column for us for a time, and I think a couple of other people who were a bit, bit more um, short-lived. <laughs> I always remember, though, Stuart, though, he would be one of the main guys that would always slag the Amiga off, which is kind of ironic because he was the editor of Amiga Power before that, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Stuart just liked upsetting people. So, full stop. <laughs> was it Insincere Dave? Was he like a parody of fanboys? I don't know, really, what uh, Insincere Dave, whether he was a parody of fanboys. It was more, I think, the kind of gushing CMVG type mm-hmm. um, news reporting that you get where everything was kind of exclamation marks and, uh, you know, fantastic. And, it, it, you know, it was magazines such as, uh, the, the, yeah, the kind of official Sega magazine and Nintendo magazine system and all those those official ones that, you know, could never report anything bad. I think that's where Insincere Dave came from. Now, obviously, did you, you were very honest about everything as well, whereas a lot of the, you know, the more polished magazines that you get on the high street they often you kind of felt like they played the um the games companies a little bit to keep in favor with them was there any instances where you actually really pissed off anyone in the games industry uh yeah yeah most most of them uh <laughs> one point or another we had we had some that were were fans but uh, um but they didn't kind of any of them go out of their way to build a relationship with us so we had carte blanche to to say what we like really uh you know we certainly we we pissed off um, Sony relatively early on because they weren't sending us review copies. So um, we we name checked their PR guy <laughs> on, on screen, which uh, we nearly got fired over. No um, but uh, it got us the review copies that we were after, so that was good. Uh, and yeah, oh God, I mean, I remember the the uh, this is a story I've told many times, but the the head of um, PR at IDOS who did Tomb Raider, we saw him at a trade show. The first thing he asked us was whether we liked his bag, and it was like, uh, "Yeah, it's, it's fine." <laughs> um, and apparently, in our write-up, the pre- which we'd completely forgotten about, but clearly had taken it to heart and um, made sure he had some sort of manly bag over his shoulder before he met us. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the way I kind of see Digitizer is like a, a kind of a Viz magazine of um, games reviews. <laughs> Did you take any influence from that? Um, I, I love Viz. I wouldn't say it influenced it, really. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I read Viz from, you know, when I was kind of 14, 15, you know, discovered it the way a lot of people did. And, you know, you could quite believe that, that um, you know, that was, that was being published. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it had, I, I always saw Viz as a, as a parody, really, of kind of, British comics and you know 
newspapers and magazines was I never saw Digi necessarily as a parody. It was it, it was purely just Tim and I, um, you know, trying to amuse ourselves. There was no kind of thought of oh let's um, let's try and be like this thing or be like that thing. It was just kind was of to- tongue in cheek uh, kind of humour. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, you know, gaming back then, around that era, it did kind of get a lot of mainstream attention. You mentioned Bad Influence before, Games Master on TV and Digitizer on mainstream TV. That kind of phased out in later years, though, didn't it, when all the TV programmes kind of went off air as well? Do you think the internet was to blame for that? Um, I don't know, really, um, whether you can blame it on the internet or just, you know, my, my experience, I think, of, of people who work in TV is that not a lot of them, certainly at higher levels, play video games so I think they don't quite get it and don't quite get the culture around it which certainly now while they don't get it they are clearly terrified of it at the same time and terrified of the rise of YouTubers and the like and see it as a threat uh, which you would think that they'd try and make friends with it and, and try and cover it a bit more but um, yeah I mean you know, now it doesn't it kind of doesn't matter does it really because we have got the internet you know whether the internet was responsible for killing that TV gaming dream or, or, or not you know there's there's so much choice online that um, we don't need the BBC to produce a game show although I believe BBC Scotland are bringing back video guidance so um, oh, really? yeah, Rab Florence it's, it kind of blows my mind a bit that gaming is bigger now than it's ever been and you know you've got a thousand channels on Sky and there isn't really a, a regular gaming programme on mainstream TV well they dropped Games Master when it was amazingly popular in favour for Hollyoaks which has never really um, <laughs> got to go. success yeah. now how did uh, Tim leave then what was the story with that um, well I think for a long time they They'd seen Tim and I as, uh, you know, we were bad news together. So there came a time when Teletext was trying to launch its website. Um, They were trying to get me more heavily involved in the graphics and design side of things again. Uh, And I think they saw that I didn't want that. I wanted to carry on writing Digi and working with Tim, um, you know, because it was more fun than sitting and faffing around with Photoshop. So um, there came a time in, it was, oh God, 1996, early 96, where Tim, who had been on a freelance contract, I was on a permanent contract, but Tim was told that he was going to have to start working from home. So it felt like it was the first sort of step towards them splitting us up. Mm-hmm. And then I was off on paternity leave for a week uh, and got a call from Tim and it turns out that he'd run a story on our gossip pages which were hosted by gossy the dog um (laughs) about uh dave perry's company dave perry being a famous journalist who appeared on games master and games world wearing a bandana perry had um complained to teletext saying it was all untrue that tim had got this tip off from someone and dave perry complained yeah tim was fired while i was off wow and it, it sort of shows you how much they kind of wanted to split us up and how much they wanted rid of Tim. I think they saw Tim as a bit of a bad influence on me, which you know wasn't the case at all. We were as bad as each other. Uh, but, yeah, the fact is that they fired him before kind of checking out the story. You know, one rule number one with journalism is you, you stand by your stories because if you kind of admit culpability, <laughs> you open it up for someone to be able to sue you. So, um, yeah, but they didn't care. They just wanted rid of him. So he was gone and, you know, it's telling that they also waited until I was off so they couldn't fire me at the same time because I think I was considered valuable in terms of my graphics work. But um, ironically, Tim leaving um, led to me taking on Digitizer full-time and, and eventually leaving Teletext as well to, to work on it at home. Now, in the later years of Digitizer, you went down to, it was like three days a week at one point, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was when Teletext were really trying to kill it. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't just axe it and why they um, tried to, you know, kind of uh, kick the life out of it gradually. Uh, it was very strange. But yeah, yeah, they, they kind of cut all the humour, um, cut it down to three days a week, cut my salary in half and blamed it all on 9-11. Um, oh, okay. which was an interesting, <laughs> interesting How did, how did they tie that together then? <laughs> uh, well, because Teletext, most of its, um, most of the advertising that it got was, was from, um, through travel companies. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the travel industry took a hit in the wake of 9-11. So um, they, they used that as an excuse to kind of cut down my salary. And the only way they could cut my salary was to reduce the amount of updates. Although, absurdly, it didn't actually reduce the amount of content. But also in that, because of the terrorists, of course, Digitizer had to had to stop being funny, or in their words, stop being not funny. So, you know, I don't know, you, you work out the logic. 
Was that a bit heartbreaking, was it, having to do it like straight laced after you'd done it a certain way? It, it was, and in some respects, I probably should have just quit there and then, but, you know, I had a mortgage and, you know, kids to feed. So uh, I just thought, well, okay, take the money and run. So I carried on doing it for another nine, ten months, um, during which time the letters of complaint didn't stop and eventually they had to uh, go back on what they'd they'd previously said, which was uh, wonderful and makes me sound like Alan Partridge because it is a classic kind of, uh, <laughs> needless to say, I had the last laugh. It was uh, really strange, the kind of media reaction with gaming and 9-11. I remember there were so many games cancelled because they had flying themes yeah. in them or, yeah. you know, it was gut reaction, wasn't it? And it was a real harsh one as well. Yeah, I think the whole world went a bit mad at the time, yeah, you know, just much. generally, and there was some... Yeah. Yeah, I think people used it a lot to kind of uh, get away with some peculiar behaviour. Yeah. So when did you know that digitizer was all over then? Um, it was after they asked me to make it daily again and bring the characters back. I got a call one day from Gavin, who was the guy that's... He still worked at Telesix, the guy doing the letters pages and the, the, the cheats pages. And he said, uh, you know, I don't want to scare you but i think um they're about to fire you and axe digitizer and i was like oh god here we and that was my first thought was here we go again because mm-hmm. there have been so many threats like this over the years and even though people have complained i just thought you know they so hate it that you know they, they've always been looking for an excuse so i kind of hung up from him and then literally less than a minute later the the guy who'd previously demanded that it be taken down to three days a week rang me up and said um oh yeah we'd like you to come in for a meeting so i said okay yep fine set the date for the meeting i hung up from him and i just thought no i really can't do this again i rang him straight straight back and said um actually i i quit i don't want to do it anymore and he was like oh right oh um actually we were gonna ask you to expand the section and we were gonna give you a pay rise no way <laughs> but uh, it was it, in some respects it was the time was right you know i you know i'd ended on a high uh, and it was, you know, in terms of a, if you want to look at it as kind of movie screenplay type structure to the third act and, you know, it had the happy ending. So it, it couldn't go on forever. Speaking of going out on the high, though, I, I st- I've actually got the graphic up in front of me here. You're at your, your final, <laughs> final screen, the end. Uh, Turn of the Worm. Now, uh, for, for those who haven't seen it, it's basically a, uh, a purple worm. <laughs> so it's a purple worm. And then uh, next to it, there's kind of a uh, white splodge next to it. Um, it's him being sick. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly what he is. I usually probably explain that Turn of the Worm was the kids' cartoon character yeah, yeah. that I um, drew for Tensex for <laughs> for ten years. <laughs> How did you get away with that? Yeah, I'm not... I still don't know. Yeah, I still don't know. It was. Um, I think just in my last week, they just figured, oh, to hell with it. Let's just get. Let you know, he's going. Um, <laughs> what's the point of having any more battles with him? And there were other things as well that a lot of people missed that I just got away with in those last couple of weeks they were just letting anything through and it was weird because you know Digi wasn't quite as bad as people think it was but in those last two weeks I thought well I'm gonna live up to what all the editors and sub-editors have always thought we were and I think every page pretty much certainly in the last week had some sort of concealed filth in there (laughs) go out on a high (laughs) nothing to lose at that point did (laughs) you yeah So how did you feel after Digi had finished then? Was it kind of a, must have been a um, shock to the system after working on it for 10 years? Yeah, it was, I think. I, I, in all honesty, I think I just felt a bit adrift. It was, um, it was weird. Uh, I thought, you know, I wouldn't miss it. But, and I, and I kind of didn't, but I think, I think I missed having that structure. I mean, I, I was fortunate in that, you know, because now I, I write TV shows and that had started to take off at the mm-hmm. time that I was coming to the end of, of Digitizer. So... I had that to keep me busy, but it, it doesn't have the same structure as, as Digi used to, where I'd kind of wake up in the morning and do it for an hour and, you know, five days a week. And uh, I think I slightly missed that, um, you yeah, know, which is why partly as well, I kind of then ended up writing a column for Edge magazine for five, six years, something like that, um, just to kind of keep my hand in with the game stuff. It must be quite heartwarming how fondly it's remembered by British gamers, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to be by a, a, a certain sort of hardcore um, who still seems to remember it. And I mean, it seems to be that people who remember it loved it. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's it's you know, I kind of accept. <laughs> I'll probably do, never do another thing in my life that that will be as loved in the way that Digitizer was, and you know, would had that impact. You know, it was it, it was my Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> Tell us about Digitizer two thousand then. Uh, yeah, well, that was uh, that was that came back 
similarly in the way that digitizer happened by accident um it it happened by accident i I wasn't intending to bring digi back but i was missing writing about games um i was missing writing something for myself i mean you know i i I write a lot of tv shows but you know in doing that there are a lot of notes and you're trying to please producers and yeah other people so uh i wanted something that was for me and then i um god how it is always a tricky tricky to talk about the origins of digitizer 2000 (laughs) because it was inspired by um, a a real person anyway i stumbled upon um someone online who i used to be aware of from the days that i wrote digitizer Mm -hmm. uh who was a games journalist at the time and uh i wrote something just purely for my own entertainment inspired by what i'd read online um by him and my girlfriend read it and she thought it was really funny and she thought it's a shame that you're not doing more of this sort of stuff so i just put it online and then kind of came out of twitter retirement i think started posting up stupid jokes and it kind of the biffo's back he you know it's he was vanished for ages and and then i just realized that, that there was still love for it out there that people had missed it and and i'd been in writing it again or writing did you like stuff i realized how much i'd missed it and um and so it became more of a, a kind of proper website uh and then people started saying well you know we'd like it to be a bit more permanent so we'll give you some money to do that so i set up a patreon fund um and people very kindly donated to that uh, and yeah we're, we're now selling t-shirts and you know we're we're pretty much a daily site I liked your uh, Minecraft video that you did as well because I like I like the way you kind of have sarcasm in there and the style of other <laughs> videos on YouTube. You know, is, yeah, is well, good. yeah, I've neglected our YouTube site for um, a month and a half or so, but I'm intending to this week get some new videos up on there. I've really enjoyed doing them. It was I wasn't quite sure what they should be because you know, Digi never had video content, so I wasn't quite sure how to translate our style into into videos but um you know it, it's it's getting there it's uh it's what's the word work in progress do you find it's very different writing for the internet to compared to teletext um i have to watch myself because i do have a tendency to to ramble on and things get a bit too long sometimes uh i know that because i enjoy doing it and i i love writing so i have to remember that you know online people like things to be in bite-sized chunks mm-hmm. I, I say i have to remember that i never do i everything <laughs> i write on there is far too long and i'm not selling it at all to your listeners <laughs> <laughs> but if you have time and you want to read it in bed or something it's better than a book you know i that discipline of having 60 words a page as we used to on teletext it was it was a great discipline it's i think it, it helped me to learn how to kind of structure sentences and paragraphs and things um but no i do i, I love the freedom i'm part Part of the reason why I'm doing the, the new site is that I love the freedom that I can just write whatever I want, really, for as, as long as I want. And it's great to have it back as well. I mean, if anyone hasn't seen the site yet, um, digitizer2000.com. Um, I'd implore anyone to go along and have a read, especially if you've got fond memories of Digitizer. Bless you. Mr. Biffo, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure.